Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of 1 Peter. Well, our Colorado grandkids went home yesterday, so we, we ended up with a semi-quiet house. Uh, Teresa and I did watch five of them on Friday night. Uh, we practiced the divided conquer. I took the three mobile ones outside and, well, we took all of them outside for a while. We just strapped two of them in place and they don't go anywhere. It works. Last week, we started in verse 8, so I'm going to read what we did last week just to get a running start into today's lesson. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay... Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, to keep, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That was last week's lesson. So we will pick up in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's a great verse. Until you get to the next one that just irritates me. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, wait a minute, didn't it just say who is going to harm us? And then it says, but if you should, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Why does this make sense? Well, it makes sense because there's a difference between harm and suffering. Now, We doubt this today, by the way. We live in a Freudian world, and Freud taught us that the aim of life is pleasure. The aim and goal of everything that we do is pleasure. Therefore, suffering is always bad. So suffering is harm. Therefore, if we're suffering, we're not living life as we should. But in reality, the first verse that we just mentioned tells us that if we are doing what we are called to do, there is nothing that is going to harm us. Remember, over in the great chapter of Romans chapter 8, who can separate us from the love of God? And then he gives this list, you know, can angels, can powers, can who And the answer is no one. If we are doing that which God would have us do, there is nothing that can ultimately harm us because our hope and what we're going to talk about today and what we've been talking about today is hope. Our hope is firmly fixed on God and his promises but that doesn't mean we might not suffer. And that's what we have trouble with in our minds because we are convinced as good 21st century Americans that if life is as it ought to be, we should never suffer. Well, most of us are old enough to know that life brings suffering. And the question is, is that suffering always bad? And Peter has told us repeatedly, and he's going to tell it to us again in just a moment, that we know that's not true because we know that our salvation is brought to us through the suffering of Jesus Christ. We know that it is possible that suffering can bring a blessing. And that's what we have trouble believing. 
We read these two verses together and say, harm? Woo, I'm never going to be harmed. And then we have suffering and we go, ah, something's wrong with the universe. Let's back up. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? You are eager to do that which is good. Um, no, I'm not going to answer that question. We're not going to have a show of hands of how many of you are zealous for doing good. Let's just say that that should be the goal of each and every one of us. I mean, back to where we were. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek that which is good. Let him be zealous to do what God would have him to do. And we had a very brief discussion last week that we have to understand that God is the definition of that which is good. And the corollary to that, he is the definition of that which is evil. His character shows us what is good. And to rebel against that is that which is evil. Today we have a huge debate about what is good. Every time you read the newspaper, you see people saying, this is good, and this is evil. And you go, wait a minute, that doesn't quite measure up to God's standard. And the answer is, it doesn't. And we're told in the scripture that it won't. That should not surprise us. The church that Peter is writing to, we have said this, by the way, every week, the church that Peter's writing to is beginning to undergo persecution. And you know what would go through your mind. Uh, is this going to ultimately destroy me? And Peter's saying no. Does this mean that I am doing something wrong? If I were doing right, then I wouldn't suffer. And Peter says no, that's not true either. You should be zealous, you should be eager, you should be enthusiastic, you should be spending your energy to do that which God would have you to do. And if you do that, there is nothing that will ultimately harm you. One of my favorite stories, and I've told this before, you remember back in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are dragged before the king because they refuse to bow down to the idol. And they tell the king, our God can save us. But if he, even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down to your idol. What are they saying? Our God has the power, but our God may choose to do one thing or another because he's a sovereign God. So if he chooses that we die, we die. But guess what? No harm comes to us. We are secure in our faith in God. In that particular case, God saved them in the midst of the fiery furnace. Fast forward. The first martyr of the church, Stephen, is dragged before the council, accused of heresy for preaching that Jesus is the, path, is the Messiah. And guess what? They stone him to death. He died. Guess what? No harm came to Stephen. His salvation was secure. Now here's the question. Why does God save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and he doesn't save Stephen? Because God had a plan. He did. And God protected. God saw to it that no harm came to those who trusted in him. Did Stephen suffer? Yes, Stephen suffered. On the list of ways of being executed, being stoned to death is not one of the better ones, okay? It literally is people throwing big rocks at you. 
Okay? Did he suffer? Yes. Is he in heaven today? Yes. Was he ultimately harmed? No. But you see, our very materialistic ideas we have inherited from this world say, if I'm suffering, I'm being harmed. And we don't understand that difference. And I'll, I'll grant to you, I have trouble understanding that difference. I don't want to suffer. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. He has put this clause in there twice already. That same clause is in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. If you rob a bank and get sent to prison... You are going to suffer in prison, but you're not suffering for righteousness' sake. Can we just make sure we understand that? If I decide that the best way to present the gospel to someone is with a baseball bat or a gun to their head, I am going to suffer, and it's not because I'm spreading the gospel. Okay? Let's just make sure we understand that. We are dealing here with people who are doing what God has called them to do, and for that they are suffering. Now, just to make sure you understand, it's not saying they're perfect. It's not saying, I mean, we're all fallen human beings. But they are doing that which God has called them to do, and for that they are suffering. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. There is a blessing from God associated with enduring suffering for righteousness' sake. What is that blessing? Well, we know from the scripture that there are rewards in heaven. We know that suffering sets an example to others of, our, for, uh, of the condition of our faith. Do you remember we had a lesson several, several lessons ago about how the testing of our faith shows how valuable that faith is? But here's the more bizarre one. As we undergo persecution, we develop a closer relationship with God and with Christ because by sharing in his suffering, we more relate, we more come into contact with Jesus. It is interesting if you read books about martyrs. I've told you before, I've started Fox's Book of Martyrs probably six times. And at some point, I just get tired of people dying. But you know what? That's what the book is about. And I might add that if you pick up a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, the copy you're picking up is actually an abridged edition. The ones I have, they're about this thick. The real one is six volumes long, each of which is this thick. Okay? Why? Because people have died for their faith in Christ since the beginning of the church and till today. Now, we as good 21st century Americans think there's something wrong with that. But guess what? The martyrs didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Why would we not worry about it? Why would you not read the newspaper and think of all the bad things that could happen to you and worry about it? Why wouldn't you just panic 
daily. Those people are going to do this to me. That's our natural tendency. And that's what we're told. That's what we're commanded not to do. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. You'd be amazed, and we've talked about it in this class before, you know, shepherds in the field, good old Christmas story, the angels show up, and what's the first thing the angels have to say? Don't fear, it'll be okay. Why? Because whenever we get a glimpse of the real spiritual realm, our first response is usually terror, okay? Um, Jesus in the boat with the disciples. The disciples are terrified of the storm. They wake up Jesus. Jesus tells, them, tells the storm to stop it, and all of a sudden they're terrified of Jesus. Why? Storms they understand. People telling storms to stop, they don't understand. In our faith, we are to acknowledge that God, that Jesus, can stop the storm. And we are to live our lives under the knowledge that he can do it. So if he chooses not to do it, it is because he has a higher purpose in mind. And we are to believe by faith that if he has a higher purpose, that higher purpose is what is best for us. And then, and then we get to the point where we do not worry, we do not trouble. But rather, but rather, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Option number one, be worried, be troubled. That's option number one. Don't do that. Option number two, be ready to tell people why you're not doing option number one. Be ready to tell people of the hope that you have within you. Now, let's make sure we get the obvious out of the way. This implies that you have hope. Okay? Nobody's going to ask you for the hope that was within you if you have no hope. It probably also implies that you're being persecuted, that you are suffering for some reason, and you're not following option number one. Then people will go, why? Have no fear, do not be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Always, how often? Always. Being prepared to do what? To make a defense to anyone who asks. This verse is probably the key verse when people talk about the subject of apologetics. Because this word, defense, is the word from which we get the word apologetics. And I have had people repeatedly think, oh, apologetics, that's the art of giving an apology. Okay? I've done something wrong, and I apologize for it. No, the word means to make a defense, to defend what you believe and why. And that is the subject of apologetics. 
You go back to the early church. Justin Martyr wrote a book, Apology. Now, he later wrote another one, so today it's Apology 1, Apology 2, where he explained to the Roman pagan world what Christians believed and why it was important. And he had to defend the Christians against certain things, number one of which is that they were atheists. Why would a Christian be an atheist? Because there's all these gods over here, and the Christians don't believe in any of them. So by definition, they're atheists. And Justin Martyr said, eh, not quite. And he defended the faith. Guess what you and I are supposed to do? We are to be prepared... To give a reason, that's a verbal reason, of why we have hope. And that is the subject of apologetics. So what is apologetics? Apologetics is being able to explain, defend, why you believe what you believe in the context of whatever culture you live in at any particular point in time. There are not many people today who are accusing Christians of being atheists. But that's what Justin Martin, Martin, Martyr had to do. Today, we live in a very different world. It's not a world permeated with thousands of gods. It's a world permeated with no god in the minds of most people. So we have to defend why there is a God or how we know there is a God. We don't make up that there is a God. We defend that there is a God. How do we know? What is his character? What does it mean to believe in God? We have to defend the inspiration of the scripture. How do we know that the Bible is really the word of God? And so on and so on and so on. Now, here's the big dilemma. Let's back up just a few phrases. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Why do I bring that up? Because of the word heart. You see, there are those who would look at the subject of apologetics and view it as a very um, academic discipline, okay? You can get a really good book. I mean, I've read these books. You know, if somebody asks this, here's the answer. If somebody asks this, here's the answer. If somebody asks this, here's the answer. More about that in just a moment. And by the way, those books are good, okay? But if I sit here and memorize all the right answers in the world and my heart is not in the right place, what am I going to do? Well, what I'm not going to do is present a defense with gentleness and respect, which is the last part of this verse. We know that God is interested in the condition of our heart. But the condition of our heart is built on the foundation of truth. That truth being the word of God. We don't believe in God because it makes us feel a certain way. We believe in God because there is a God and believing in God makes us feel a certain way. They're all connected to each other. We are to sanctify our hearts. We are to be ready both intellectually and spiritually to give an answer for why we have hope. Don't try to think, ah, I've memorized the list. I can now proceed to beat anybody over the head with it. But at the same time, don't think I feel real good about Christianity. So if somebody asks me, I'll just tell them I feel real good about it. And guess what? 
they're going to go, I'm glad you feel that way, bye. Which, by the way, is the postmodern world in which we live today. Well, my heart says it's true. Well, your heart should say it's true. But it's true because it's true, not because your heart says it's true. And we need to be able to give a reason, a defense for the hope that is within us. So, how do you do that? No, how do you prepare to do that? Remember what it says, be prepared. It is interesting because elsewhere we're told, you know, don't worry about what you're going to say when they drag you before the authorities because the Holy Spirit will tell you. Here it's telling us to be prepared. And I might add, those are not contradictory to each other. Be prepared, and then you won't worry. Number one, to be prepared. This is a very quick, quick couple of points, because there are books written on this. And I will tell you, go read those books, or just some of them. More about that in a moment. Number one, you've got to understand the Bible. I... I we can't get around that. God has given us his word. His word is truth. All scripture is profitable. We are to learn it. And that's not just sitting in this class. That's not just listening to a few sermons. That is studying it and meditating on it. What does this mean? Why does it mean what it means? Now, let's back up. So are you saying, Kyle, that I've got to be a world-class expert in the Bible? No. You just need to be learning it continually. Every day. It isn't something that you learn and you set it aside and say, I know that. I've told you I'm teaching... Uh, Amongst my other classes, I'm teaching algebra this year, okay? Let me let you in on a secret. I don't prepare for my algebra class. I show up to class, I open the book, oh, we're going to do this today. You know why? I know algebra. I have to, I, I told Teresa after a, a month, I have to remind myself there was a time in my life I didn't know algebra, but I don't remember that. So I have no trouble with algebra. I just know that. I've studied the Bible for as long as I can remember. Guess what? I don't know the Bible like I know algebra. Every time I study it, I learn something new. Guess what we're supposed to do? Continually to learn something new. How do we do that? By continually learning. The Bible and the Holy Spirit working in our lives continues to reveal truth to us. If you're going to give a defense for what you believe, you have to understand the Bible. There just isn't any other way around it. After that, what do you do? You begin to understand the questions that people are asking about the Bible. Not about just the book, the Bible, although they'll ask those too, but about the things of the Bible, about God. And here's what scares us off at times. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Okay? And part of it is, oh, I messed up, I'll go hide. I've got this basic theory in life, okay? We've reached this mutual agreement. I'm not going to ask you any questions if you promise not to ask me any questions. And then we're good. There's a very simple response if somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to. Do you know what that is? I don't know, but I'll find out. And then you do it. 
But let me let you in on another secret. When I was in college for a while, I was a proctor in the math department, and I taught, it was a self-paced class, you'd walk around and answer questions. I always wondered why my high school math teacher knew the answer to every problem that we ever asked him. You ready for this? He had heard them a hundred times before. (laughs) He had. Not a similar problem, the exact problem. When you start getting into the questions that people ask about Christianity, guess what? There's actually a finite list of them. And Every one of them has been answered for the last 2,000 years. I remember exactly, exactly this point in time where I had this coworker who was a very devout atheist, and he just kept asking me these questions as if, ah, you've never heard this before, have you, have you? And I finally dawned on me, he thinks he's being very creative. Every question he's asked has been asked before and before and before and had been answered before and before. Now, you may not like the answer, but that's their problem. All we're told is to give a reason of why we believe what we believe. And what we believe is that we have hope. And we have hope in the midst of suffering. So, we learn the Bible. We learn the questions that people are wrestling with. Okay? If you don't know them, I could give you a list. Okay? Is there a God, yes or no? What is the character of God? Make a list. Is the Bible true? Can we trust it, yes or no? Is Jesus who he says he was, yes or no? How am I to be right with the world, with the universe, All of these come into the question of salvation. At first, they don't label it as salvation. It's just there's something wrong, and I know there's something wrong. Why is there suffering in this world? Why do bad things happen? All of these questions have been answered before. And guess what? You should learn the answers to them. We've talked about these because I tried to throw them in because it's important that we know what they are. So, you, sanctify your heart. Make your heart ready first so that you are ready. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, it is interesting because uh, different translators have a different word order here. Is it our hearts that are supposed to be holy, or are we honoring Christ who is holy? And my easy answer to that is yes. Okay? We know Christ is holy. What does that mean? He is set apart from sin. Christ was a human being who never sinned. He is set apart to do that which God would have him to do. My will is to do the will of him who sent me. We in our hearts are to think about Christ so that we will have hope, so that people will ask us and we can defend what we believe. Honor Christ in your heart. Remember, in biblical terms, the heart is your mind, will, and emotions. Collectively, it's kind of who you are as a human being. It's what sets you apart. Your mind, your will, and emotions, okay? What does it mean to honor Christ with my mind? Well, I try to think 
things the way Christ would think about things. My mind, my will. I would choose that which Christ would have me to choose. Emotions. I will feel, feel that which God, which Christ would feel in the same situation. I mean, we just can look at the examples, right? Christ gets ticked off at those who are dishonoring God's house. I get ticked off at people who don't do what I want them to do. Christ shows love and compassion to those who are hurting, those who are the outcast of society. I show different emotions. Do you see the, the, the distinction? In your heart, in the center of your being, not just in your mind alone, it's not I read the book, I'm supposed to believe these things about God. You really do believe those things about God. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared. Okay? How often are you supposed to be prepared? Always, at all times. Now, this is interesting to me. The passage about don't worry about what to say when you're dragged in front of the political leaders because of your faith, as a general rule, let's just say that's a once-in-a-lifetime event, okay? Unless you're Peter, Paul, and then it happens all the time, okay? But it's not a daily occurrence. It's a one-off, as we would say. And we're told, don't worry about it. We'll take care of you. This isn't supposed to be the one-off experience. Always be prepared. Always be ready to defend what you believe. What does that mean? I know this is going to be weird. It means you're looking for that conversation. Always. You're looking for a reason to give a reason. You're not running away from it. I don't know about you, but there's lots of times I would just as soon not talk to somebody. I mean, I told you, right? I was on an airplane coming home one night. I had an all-day business meeting, and it was a late flight coming home. I was exhausted. And this guy sitting next to me was trying to convert me to Hinduism. <laughs> now, Stan says Hindus don't do that, but nobody told this guy that. And guess what? I didn't want to talk to him. I was tired. Guess what? I talked to him. I didn't convert him, and he didn't convert me, but we had an interesting conversation about it. Something about quantum physics proving Hinduism to be true. Anyway, always, always. What gives you the confidence to say that I can do that always. Being prepared, sanctifying your heart. That's what you're doing. Now, does that mean I've got to know the answer to every question anybody could possibly ask at any time? No. Let me just let you in on a secret. You're never going to be that prepared. I remember... This was a long time ago. We, we were, our children were getting to the age that we had to make a decision about school, and we had decided we were going to homeschool our kids. And this guy at work said, well, you know, can you go out in the backyard and pull up a, a, a shovel full of dirt and explain everything that's in that dirt? I go, no. And he goes, then you're not ready to teach. I'm going, how long is it going to be? I, I never had a teacher who could do that. 
We get in our minds that I have to be able to argue against, say, the greatest atheist that we read about, or I'm no good at this. No, you just need to be able to talk to the people that you come in contact with every day. I don't know who those people are, but guess what? They're probably not devout atheists, even if they don't believe in God. They aren't very militant about it. They're probably more ignorant than you are about what you believe. My devout atheist friend, he was so ignorant of Christianity, it was just mind-boggling. Like, he knew nothing. Not a thing. Guess what? God has put you in a circle, in a group, and God wants you to be prepared to give those people a defense of what you believe. But there's two more words we have to talk about before we quit. Now, yes. Can I interrupt? Please. <laughs> well, I figured you knew that word. <laughs> to me, the hardest thing is, is if disasters and events and personalized mm-hmm. when the guy, the girl, the woman, whoever, why would God let this happen? Yep. And that to me is. is it's hard. Is you've got to be. I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. That is, his, his observation is good. The hardest thing is when bad things happen, how do we explain that? And that is the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. And it's a hard problem. And what makes it even more hard is that people ask the question sometimes just as an intellectual exercise. Right. But generally, people ask the question because their best friend just died. Their wife just died. Their dog just died, okay? One of my high school students last year, his cousin, who he was very, died on a motorcycle. What do you say in that situation? In that situation, what they really want is love and compassion. Yes, Bill. No, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. <laughs> well, let me ask you, you know, from the time I was a Christian, I said to know Jesus personally. Huh? And I don't know that anyone ever told me how to do that. Yeah. And the other day, one of the things that happened, I was studying the, group, the, uh, the time that Jesus was washing Peter's feet. Uh-huh. Totally. Remember, we, love, we sanctify our heart, our mind, our will, and our emotions. All of those. We look at Christ and we go exactly what you're just doing. What did Christ feel in this situation? How do I learn to feel that way? I repent for not feeling that way because I often don't. What would Jesus choose in this situation? The will, the the choosing part of us, and the mind. No, it is all connected. If you do not connect it, you're going to mess up. I'm going to feel the things God, that Christ feel, but I'm not going to think the things that he... That's never going to work, ever, ever, ever. They are all intimately connected. Two more words. To anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked in that passage that all of you want to forget about wives being subject to their husbands so that the wives, if the husband is not a believer, the wife can win him over by her gentleness 
And I said at the time, sometimes we think gentleness is just a feminine virtue. It only applies to, no. Gentleness applies to each of us. It implies a lack of arrogance, a lack of pride. I am presenting my defense not to win an argument. Let me repeat that. I am giving my defense not to win an argument. You've heard my theory before. I'm talking to one person, and we have a really good conversation. You bring one more, definitely two more people into the conversation, and all of a sudden, I'm having to talk with you with an audience, and I've got to win, or they're going to look down on me. Guess what? That's not gentleness. If your only goal is to beat the other person into submission, go back to step one about sanctifying your heart. We are to do it with gentleness and respect. Now, that word respect is interesting. Um, We could have a long discussion about that. That respect is actually awe. That word is actually fear. Why? Well, there's two ways of looking that. If you connect it to the next verse, which we will do in two weeks, maybe the respect is respect for God. That drives me to show compassion to this person. And that's a valid answer, by the way. But maybe it has something to do with this person that you are arguing with, I put that in quotes, happens to be made in the image of God. You're not arguing with some mere creature. You are arguing, you are discussing, you are talking to someone who was created in the image of God for whom Christ died. That's who you're talking to. Don't think that you just need to beat them to a pulp. Yes, sir. Reverence, exactly. It's awe. It's the same word that's used to talk about God. I might also add, it's the same word that wives are supposed to do for their husbands. Now, we won't go there. His word, his says reverence in the place of respect. Yeah. What is the conclusion of all of this? There is, hmm? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Surprises, prayer, patience. Yep. I mean, we know, right? Jesus says, if anyone asks you to go one mile, go two miles. And you go, what the heck does that mean? Well, a Roman soldier, by law, could hand you his pack and make you carry it for one mile. That's what the law said. So you're a good Jew. This Roman who is occupying your country gives you a pack, and for a mile you carry that pack, seething in anger at him. And you get to the mile marker and you drop that on the ground. You're done. You have fulfilled your obligation. But what if You're carrying that pack for a mile, and you're not seething with anger. You get to the mile marker, and you keep walking. That Roman soldier is going to think, you're either the dumbest guy on this planet, or there's something different. And then you have a place to talk. You have a reason to tell them for the hope that is in you. If you're just seething with anger, if you are not treating 
people with gentleness and respect, you might win a few arguments. Maybe. You can get really good and win the argument. But you're never going to lead people to Christ. Be ready at all times, under every situation, to give people a reason why you believe what you believe. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you know that I don't remember numbers very well. But I will find it for you. <laughs> I will find it for you. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, but I, which gets you down to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I do remember that. Anyway, be ready. All that implies is that you have hope. If you have no hope, then you have another problem. And the solution to that problem is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us hope. I pray, Lord, that you would bring people into our lives that we can share you with. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 5.41.